Hello everyone and welcome to Always Choose Orange. This week's episode features a conversation with Deanna Lozenski, who's a regenerative grain farmer based out of central North Dakota. Um, and in 2020, her and her husband Kelly started Guardian Grains, which is a company that sells whole grain, stone milled flour, flake barley, artisan pasta, and a lot more across the Midwest and beyond. They ship all over the country. Um, in our conversation, we talked about soil biology, regenerative farming practices, pasta making, nutritional labels, stone milling, all sorts of things. And it was just fascinating to sit down and learn about, you know, an aspect of the food industry from someone who's doing this day in and day out. This one came about in a really cool way. Back in 2022, my wife Jackie and I took the kids to the local farmer's market and we were walking around, checking out all the different booths, and we went to one where, you know, really professional looking setup with um, some flour, with pasta, and we struck up a conversation with, with Deanna, who was there, and she just broke down a bunch of really cool stuff. Jackie and I are really interested in nutrition, farming, how things work, infrastructure, all those things, and so we just had like a 20 to 25 minute conversation right there at the farmer's market that could have been a podcast on its own. And I remember as we were walking away, I remember thinking, wow, that is a conversation that would have been really cool to have recorded, to go back to and study and break down and enjoy because I'm someone who really likes learning. And I would imagine a lot of people listening to this feel the same way. And so it was really cool when I started this podcast and was making a, a list of people that I really wanted to have conversations with. I remembered that conversation at the farmer's market with her and, and reached out and she graciously agreed to, to hop on here. So we had a blast. I, I really think there's a lot in this conversation that you'll enjoy. Um, and on top of it all, too, um, Deanna was gracious enough to offer us uh, an exclusive coupon code. So if you listen to this and, and want to try out their flour or their barley or their pasta, which I've tried the pasta and the flour, and it's totally awesome, um, there's a 20% off uh, coupon code that you can use uh, for orders over $50. So that um, applies to anything except for the mock mill products, which are the big uh, like stone mills and stuff that they sell on there. Uh, so it doesn't apply to those. But anything else for an order over $50, if you type in always choose orange as one word at checkout, uh, you'll get 20% off your orders. So yeah, if you feel so inclined, definitely do that. I know I sure will be. But in the meantime, listen to this amazing conversation with Deanna Lozenski. Well, awesome. The, the first, where I, there's so many different places to start because I'm interested in a lot of aspects of what you do, what you and your husband both do. Um, but I think a good place to start is just the backstory of Guardian Grains, like what you're doing now and how you got here and what the journey's been like. Okay. So the backstory of Guardian Grains. Well, um, I will, I'll start way back um, from uh, when I came to, I came to the farm from the cities in 2005 and my husband fully immersed me in all things farming. I knew nothing about running a tractor and he showed me how. And, um, so I like to say that I traded in my high heels for cowboy boots and, um, I wouldn't trade them back ever. 
So since um, joining the farm in 2005, um, I've learned all kinds of things between driving a tractor, driving a combine, driving a grain cart. Um, I don't, I still don't drive the big semis with um, all the gears. That doesn't interest me. And I've been able to manage to stay out of those. Um, so that's great. Uh, so lots of lots of things to learn and um, just really being learning to be a partner to my husband. So we farm as a team. So and I like to say that I'm 50% of the above ground workforce, right? Because the rest of all of our essential workers live underground. <laughs> um, or they're native to our area and they're like kind of just pass through. Um, and so yeah, so we um, have gotten um, a really um, good, and we've had a really good time learning how to work together. Not everyone can work with their spouse, and some days it's really not easy, but um, for the most part, we make a really good team and uh, complement each other uh, and pick up where the other one leaves off, so it works out pretty good. So that's how it started. I came here knowing nothing. And I'm still learning every day. I still feel like I know nothing about what we're doing, um, which is good because there's lots of time for me to learn and grow and change, which is really important um, that we don't stay stuck in any one set of ideas. Uh, so uh, we started um, Guardian Grains in 2020. And this was really out of the blue. Um, I came across um, a classified ad on Bizman, our local classified um, online marketplace, for a man that was looking for desiccant-free wheat berries. And I was like, first of all, I was like, what the heck is a wheat berry? Because we don't refer to it as that. Like, we always just call it seed. And second of all, I was like, you know, and, and he wanted it for home milling. And I, so the second question I had was like, people are milling their own flour at home. Like what is happening? Like I had no idea. And so I called him. Um, and sure enough, he was looking for grain um, that was clean, that had not been sprayed prior to harvest. That's the desiccation piece. So it, that's why he was looking for desiccant free. Um, wheat berries and I was like I have that and so I called my husband and I said can do you have clean wheat seed and he was like yeah we got clean wheat seed and because we clean all of our own seed because we save our seed for the most part and so um I said can you bring me two buckets to the house and he was, and by this time after you know 15 years at the time my husband doesn't ask a lot of questions right he just is like okay just he just brings me the buckets and so he brought me two buckets of wheat, which was 70 pounds. And I said, um, how, how much can I get for that? And he said, Deanna, you have a, a just over a bushel of wheat here. I was like, yeah, I know. Well, like, what can I get for that? He was like, it's worth $5.40 at the elevator. I was like, well, my customer, I said, I can't charge $5.40. My bucket cost me $10. He's like, what? He's like, what? And I was like, yeah he's like what customer like how what are you talking about i was like oh so i found this guy who wants desiccant free wheat berries 
And Kelly was like, what the heck is a wheat berry? I was like, right, it's just the wheat seed, right? They're milling it at home. He's like, milling it for what? <laughs> I said, they're making flour at home. He's like, people do that? I was like, people do that. And so, you know, I'd been on the researching and Googling all the things prior to this. And, and so uh, I made an arrangement to meet my very first customer the next day in the hardware store parking lot in Minot. Um, and I, I had two... I had found out that I needed food grade buckets, right, um, to sell this wheat wheat berry in. And um, I wanted to make sure that this customer knew where to come when he ran out, right? And so I decided I'd design a logo, you know, just really quick. And um, so I designed a logo with um, that has our state on it and a... Um, lots of roots in in it um and that the roots are kind of my nod to regenerative farming which is we haven't talked much about yet but that's kind of the principles that we follow is healthy soil and living roots and i wanted wheat to be in my logo because i wanted people to know that we were a gluten-full facility like i wanted to everyone to know that everything we do there's going to it's going to contain wheat and that I was growing wheat that you could actually eat. Right. I wanted people to know that. And so I designed this logo and I made a cricket cutout and I put it on the bucket. And my husband was like, you did that this tonight. I was like, yeah. And he was like, wow, great. So I got to meet my first customer in the parking lot that very next day. And he changed everything for me. Not just for me, um, for my whole family. Because up until that time, we had not been eating the food that we were growing on the farm. Up until that point in time, it wasn't connecting to us that we were actually growing food. We were just growing a commodity, yeah. right? That sounds crazy. It sounds like, like, what do you mean you didn't know you're growing food? But when you sell thousands and tens of thousands of bushels into a commodity market that's that it just doesn't go any further in our brains than that and so and it occurred to me at that point that we needed to be eating what we were growing and how could we want how could we put how could we trust people to put the wheat that we're growing on their plates if i didn't first put it on mine and so um then I wanted to become a home miller, right? And so it was crazy because a couple of years earlier, um, my mother-in-law had said, I got a flour mill for the KitchenAid, the KitchenAid mixer. And I kind of looked at her like really crazily, like my kids were like two and new. And I was like, I don't have time to be milling fucking flour. I'm excuse, I was like, you know, and that's exactly, I think those were the, my exact words. Like they were not kind. And she was just so excited. And I think I just took the wind right out of her sails. Like I was thought to myself, like, oh, who has time for this? Um, so um, fast forward, uh, as now I have um, wanting to learn about home milling. And I called my mother-in-law. I was like, hey, do you still have that flour mill? And she's like, yeah i was like could i use it and she was like really i was like yeah and she you know blew the dust off it and brought it over to me in the box that had never been opened 
and um, I started trying it. And I right away, I discovered that I did not love that flower coming from that KitchenAid attachment. And I knew I wanted a stone mill for my countertop um, and just started going down the rabbit hole of better nutrition and flour, right? I just, it was a whole deep, long rabbit hole that I started going down that I'm still going down that I'm still educating myself about and all of, uh, and I'm learning with all of my customers about all the time. So I, I think I got kind of off track with the question of how we got where we were going, but that's no, that's great. And okay, so there's so many jumping off places, but one of the questions that came up as you were talking is um, the regenerative aspect. So, were you guys, was that how? Because I, I saw on your website, right, fourth generation farm. So, it's been in your husband's family for a long time. Were they always farming like that? Or was that something that a mindset shift prompted? Or, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my husband is fourth generation um, on, on our on the family farm that his great grandpa settled in 1918. Um, and so he was uh, um, an immigrant from Ukraine and settled here. And so we are still farming the, that land today. So um, the farm has evolved over the last hundred and some years from, you know, with the times. And my father-in-law and my husband transitioned to um, no-till practices in 2000, which it was considered soil conservation, right? So no more tilling the land. Um, it was direct seeding into standing stubble to conser conserve moisture, to um, hold the soil from wind and water erosion, right? Like there was, it was a whole soil conservation movement that actually, you know, came about in the fifties, but it hit in 2000 as no-till on for my husband and his dad. And so we had been no-till farming since then. And, um, but on the conventional side, so conventional as in we were still applying all the fertilizers, um, all the synthetic fertilizers, nitrogen, sulfur, potassium, zinc, phosphorus, all of them. And we were also in applying insecticide and fungicide and um, all of the herbicide passes as well to combat weeds, right? And so there was a lot of farming going on. And I refer to it now um, kind of adoringly as moron farming because we were continually putting more on all the time, more on of everything. And so in retrospect, that's how it looks to me as more on farming. And so um, we made the transition into what is now being called regenerative agriculture in 2013. And really it wasn't, um, that was when we kind of decided that we were gonna figure out a way to reduce the use of some of the herbicides and the insecticides and the fungicides and all of all of the things. And so um, in 2014, uh, we planted pollinator plots on the farm. And because we planted pollinator plots on the farm, 
then we absolutely were not going to spray an insecticide, right? So because we had just spent all this time planting these pollinator plots, and now if insects were coming into the cropland, we were still not going to spray an insecticide and kill off all the beneficials that we had just made homes for, right? So that was easy. Um, an easy way to eliminate insecticide was to plant pollinator plots. It was a it was a benefit, like a ripple effect and unexpected outcome where we weren't really like, hey, we're going to, you know, this will eliminate the insecticide. It was really like, hey, I guess we can't use insecticide anymore. Um, and we quit fungicide cold turkey just because we figured that like we could eliminate that pretty, pretty easily. Um, but everything else took time. So um, like I said, we were... Um, putting down all of the different types of fertilizer. And uh, we were doing it in a way that was by soil type and by, by, by zone. And we were putting on what the recommended agronomy soil test um, suggested. Um, we were putting down those amounts, um, variable rate with my husband's air seeder, all he, he, he designed it in a way to do to do it that should not have been able to do it. But in, and we didn't realize at the time that he was actually coding, right? We didn't know, but that's what he did. Um, he designed a, a software and, a co and coded his air seeder to do variable rate fertilizer. So it would switch on the go between, between the soil types on our farm. And we have five different soil types on the farm. So as the air seeder crosses into a different soil type, it would change all of the prescriptions for fertilizer. And so, when we started to reduce them, we looked at, at the farm. And at the time we were farming 7,500 acres. And so, and we were spread out over 50 miles. So five zero miles. It was a long way to go to get to all of our fields. And it was a lot of acres to cover. Um, and so we started reducing um, based on organic matter. So, Anything that had 3.5% organic matter or more, Kelly decided we could go fertilizer free from year one. So we had 500 acres of that 7,500 that was above three and a half. So we cut off fertilizer on those right away in year one. Everything else got reduced 20% for the next five years to eliminate. So it was a slow process because our soils were completely addicted. Um, we had been applying so many amendments for so long, they were completely non-functioning. Our soils did not have, um, they weren't connected to the soil, like to the plants. It, they were, the plants were all on life support. They were only living based on the um, nutrients that we were applying. And so um, and we were following a, agronomic suggestions, um, conventional agro agronomy to do that. But so that's how we we uh, reduced to eliminate. And so in 2019 was our first year that was 100% fertilizer free, 100% um, uh, all, on all the acres. And um, so and everything else like the herbicide, which is the weed spray is had been reduced also 
and we didn't know like we didn't think of that when we were reducing the synthetic fertilizers that our weeds wouldn't have as much energy either right so like because we reduced all of the synthetic nutrients our weeds were not near as aggressive because they were no longer on steroids right and either was our crop so there was no no steroids being applied right and so they were not as aggressive so the herbicides have been had been reduced by 80 percent just from taking removing um as as we remove the the fertilizers so um it was really a ripple effect that benefited us benefited us all the way around and it was really a um one of those things where you think you're making a choice for one reason but then the benefits are so much more than what you had anticipated like um and so we had been what I, what we referred to as regenerative um, during that time. And so in 2020, when I saw that, um, that ad, uh, I considered us regenerative farmers. So, so that it, a lot has changed in that time. And so um, we still use a herbicide pass in the spring which is the reason we don't certify as organic. And that's also why we don't identify as organic. Um, Not that organic can't use chemical because they can. It's just, they're not the same chemicals, right? So um, herbicide is still a part of our farming system on an as needed basis. So that would, could mean prior to planting in the spring, or it could mean like in small grains with three to four leaf when they're about six inches tall um and they're in a vegetative state they're not in a grain filling state or they're fruit not fruiting in any way so the herbicide is early and the goal on the farm is to minimize the disturbance well my husband will tell you the goal is to master the art of doing nothing we're not there yet yeah right <laughs> like we're not, that's, that's not that's not that's not where we're at right now but um we, so my goal is to minimize disturbance to the soil microbiome. The soil comes first in everything that we do. Um, and we didn't know how important soil biology was really until 2019 when we were on the very edge of like a fertilizer free frontier, right? And we're like, how are we going to continue to go grow crop without adding fertilizer like forever, Right. Um, and we discovered some really important science at just the right time that was coming out of Rutgers University. Um, and it described a system where plants are actually feeding themselves with the soil biology that's referred to as the rhizophagy cycle. And so if plants are engaged in the rhizophagy cycle where they're Um, consuming whole cells from the soil and stripping these microorganisms of their cell walls, which contain all the nutrients, N, P, K, sulfur, zinc, copper, all of that. Like it has all of that. Um, And then they release them back into the soil to reform their cell walls with nutrients so they can come back and feed the plant again. So, it's a cycle as in it doesn't 
quit unless we interrupt it. One of the things that interrupts the rhizophagy cycle is fertilizer. Um, applied fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer can disrupt that. So um, our plants were in, were in a functioning cycle. Like we had seen it working on our farm. We were growing a crop without adding any fertilizer. Um, we were growing a crop that wasn't getting attacked by pests or disease. Um, so we knew that it was working, but we really didn't know why or how. Because as farmers, we are told, like, you can't do that. You can't, you can't grow a crop without nitrogen, phosphorus, and um, potassium. You just can't do it. And so to see the science behind it was like, just like the push we needed to keep us going in this direction. And so um, we've been focused on soil biology ever since 2019. And so that's why I say I'm 50% of the above ground workforce because the rest of the essential workers are microscopic, but so much more important than I am, right? Like so much more important. So that's kind of been the shift into regenerative ag for us, which is now kind of um, eco agriculture, right? So more about caring for the earth and minimizing disturbance. Um, and for us, like, so I was talking about how herbicide is still a part of our system on an as-needed basis, but it's been reduced by 80%. So when we're looking at weeds, right, um, weeds, we don't mind weeds if, if there's enough moisture. But if we're in a drought, like we have been for the last three years, any plants, any unintended plants will also consume moisture from my crop. And so if the crop can get up and established in a canopied over between the rows, they will choke out any weeds and we don't have to worry about it. But if not, if it's like 2023 where we had snow on the ground until um, the mid-May, but the soil was warming up underneath. And by the time the snow melted, the weeds already had a start. Um, these are instances where we use a herbicide pass. And like I said, it's always about minimizing the disturbance to the soil microbiome. So if our choices to mitigate weeds are herbicide or a tillage pass, um, we will choose the herbicide pass over the tillage pass only because the tillage pass, while it can rid us of the weeds, it also destroys the entire network of the soil microbiome. So everything's connected with tiny little um, root hairs and um, um, fungi that are all connected. Everything's connected with mycelium. So when you go through, when we, if we take a tillage pass and go through and rip all that stuff apart, the whole soil microbiome goes into a triage situation. And so they can know, like the microorganisms can't pro provide nutrients for my plants because they're busy fixing their homes. They're busy trying to get the lights back on. They're busy trying to feed their families, right? Like there is, they are not working for me because I just went through with a natural disaster, right? So the idea with the herbicide pass being the lesser of the two 
um, as far as disruption. And so, and one other thing like a lot of people don't know is that, okay, are you familiar with bioremediation on some level, right? Um, I've heard, th- I've heard that. I don't know. If okay. I'm not like super okay. technically versed. Okay. In- okay. So no, like bioremediation is the process. This is super simplified. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not an expert, <laughs> but like, it's the process of taking toxins or chemicals or some, um, out of a soil system okay. and remediating it. Okay. Um, so metabolizing it the way that happens is with soil biology. So like in Chernobyl, when the nuclear reactor went and destroyed everything, they immediately went in with bacteria and fungi and microorganisms and sprayed everything to help remediate. So it works the same way in our soil system. So if the the goal is to have as many like such a huge diverse population of soil microbiome, like soil microorganisms there in the soil working and living and growing and thriving. So when I come in through with, um, or when we, so when we have to use a herbicide pass because it's a disturbance, right? Um, they will be there to metabolize the chemical. So that that's something a lot of people aren't aware of that happens is that if the soil biology is there when we spray a herbicide, the herbicide is metabolized. That means it's broken down. And then that keeps it out of the food, keeps it out of the air, and keeps it out of the water. The metric that we are measuring and that matters to us is the end result. So can we use a herbicide early in the season and keep it out of the food, keep it out of the air, and keep it out of the water? And so we're a part of a study. It's an ongoing study out of in Massachusetts. Um, and they test our grain every season. At the end of the year, when we harvest, we send off samples and it's tested for residual chemical. So that is how we are ensuring that we are not having residual chemical in the grains that we're selling to our customers or to the elevator. Um, that goes or into our flour or pasta or flaked barley. Um, That is how we're making sure that there is no residual in the end food product, whether it's for people or animals. So there's that. That's awesome. That's super fascinating. Like I, I just, well, I just learned so much about that stuff. Like, yeah, like, oh man, let's see. There's so many, so many spots to jump off. Um, one of the things that I was just thinking as you were describing all that and like the transition that you guys took from the conventional farming all the way to where you're at now and where you're headed in the future, I would imagine that there was a level of fear probably around this is not the way that we've always done it. Everyone's telling us to do it like this. We're not going to see succeed and all that stuff. Like number one, is that like an accurate statement that there was probably some sort of uncertainty of how is this year going to go? Are we going to take a massive hit? All this stuff. And then part two of that question being, how did you both deal with that? And um, did, was some of that work, like you were saying, intuitive and then mixed with research or kind of what was that sort of stepping out into the dark? Like, 
Oh, it, it, it is dark, just like you said, and it is super scary and there's not a lot of support, right? Um, especially back when we were transitioning in 2013, like things we were talking about were off the grid. Like they weren't, it was hard to even find research about what uh, some of the things that we're doing. Um, and it was, it was scary, but we knew like there had to be another way. And you really have to go out on faith and be like, this has to work. Like it, it, we know it works because is there anybody out in the native areas um, spoon feeding nutrients? Right. No, nobody. In those native areas that are completely untouched around our farm, nobody's out there spraying um, insecticide. Nobody's putting a fungicide out there. Nobody is putting N, P, or K out there, right? Like, nobody's doing that. So we know in a perennial system that it can function. And so our challenge was making sure we could make it function in an annual cropping system. And that's where the soil biology is key, because as long as that's there and in place, then all of the workers are there. Um, and then event inevitably the plants, whatever it is that we're growing, whether it's wheat or flax or mustard or peas or ancient wheat or ancient barley, the plants decide which soil biology they need and which they don't. So the plants are the biological indicator of what is going on. And so we do a lot of observing and a lot of watching and waiting. And it's really been um, eye-opening and um, has really changed everything about our perspective. Because we walk into our fields and we engage our senses. So how it feels under our feet. There, our soils are more like a sponge. And so when we walk in our field, instead of walking on hard dirt, it feels soft and like a cloud. Um, and that's because there's air in the soil. Um, and guess what? Microorganisms need air to breathe, like just like we do. You have to have air in the soil to infiltrate water. Um, when we put a spade in the ground and you hold the soil up to your face, you can smell it. It smells fungal. It smells like a forest floor. Um, when we go across the property line to our neighbor, who is a conventional farmer, the soil smells sterile. It doesn't smell like anything. And um, everything has a sound. The, the sound of the insects in our fields are, I mean, it's overwhelming because it's very noisy. And the sounds of the roots, when you put a spade in the ground, it all makes a noise. Um, and so just basically trying to get back to paying attention, doing less, interrupting the system less, and benefiting more. So we knew when we transitioned from the full inputs into our system now that there was going to be a yield drag, right? Because those yields, those crops we were producing weren't real, right? 
they um, were on steroids, like I talked about before. And so when we take those away, those are, those are yields that are beyond the natural capacity of the soil. Right. Those aren't, those aren't yields that we, we knew we would get again. Right. That's, and we, and those yields, we only got sometimes. Um, anyway, um, but because we're spending less on fertilizer and spending less well, not spending nothing on fertilizer, spending nothing on insecticide and spending nothing on fungicide and spending less on herbicide, we don't need as many bushels to make it economically viable anymore um, because yield pays the bills, right. right? That's what we're told as farmers. That's what they tell us. Right. You have to grow more, more. This is really, this is kind of, a, you, you can cut this out if you want, but this is kind of economy 101. Yeah. Right. But in farming, they give you all the tools to get as many bushels as possible because we're taught that good farming means big yields. Right. Right. But farmers produce those big yields. And guess what? They tank the price at the elevator. So you, you, we grew so much wheat that they don't have to give you anything for it. Mm. So because you grew so much, now it's worth less supply right. and demand. Right. And not only did we grow more, now we had more fuel in the trucks, more trips with the trucks to to haul the grain, more trips with the combine, more 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 of everything. So all of the expenses are up, right, to get this bigger crop. But now the income is less. Mm. Right? That's like that's crazy. What if we grew less and actually got guaranteed a better price? Right. And, and the food would be better. So that's like the next part of it, right? So we talk about like, not even nutrient density in the foods that we're growing in the grains that we're growing. I'm not even looking at density. I'm looking because the nutrients, who cares how dense they are, if they're not available to your body, right? Like that's no good to us. So what we're looking for is nutrient availability, right? How available are the nutrients in the grains that we're growing? How available are the nutrients in the grains that we're growing for people? How available are those nutrients for animals? Those are what we're looking for. And so, um, because that's really what matters, right? That's the end metric is how available those nutrients are. And because our plants are basically farming their own microbes, to feed themselves, right? They are finding the nutrients to grow themselves. And so then therefore those nutrients are available in the grains that we're growing. And so they're not just there, um, they not just there on a test, they're actually available. So that's the other part of the way we're growing um, our, our crop is that the foods that we're growing can be more nutrient available. And so, um, and so, yeah, it's really, it's really stretched and changed. And um, it's just kind of, it, it, it's just really backwards in the way that farmers are told what good farming is. And so when you discover that as a farmer and you feel like you've been completely lied to because when we were putting on all of the amendments and I know 
we have farming friends that are still farming in a conventional way using all of the um, big agronomy tools. Um, nobody tells you what you're doing could be bad for the food system. Like there's no farmer anywhere that is not, or that's trying to grow bad food anywhere. Like that's not, that's not on the agenda, right? Like that's nobody's agenda. Um, and so, but they don't tell us that by doing less, by applying less, by spending less, we can actually grow better food and that it can be worth more. Right. They don't, they don't tell you that, Right. <laughs> but it's, it's a, but it's economy 101 supply and demand. Right. So that, that makes complete sense is some of it. Um, and again, I have a very rudimentary understanding of like this landscape and stuff is some of it that that messaging came from the people creating and selling these pesticides and stuff. Is that kind of that whole thing that we see in all sorts of industries across, across the board? Okay. Yep. The next silver bullet. Right. Yield. They say that yield pays the bills, right? And that's, you need the yield because there's so many stinking bills with that comes with all the amendments you have to have like and the difference is it's passed through that's all it does is pay the bills mm -hmm. all of that yield does is go to pay all the people that you have to pay to make that yield right, right? none of it stays in the farmer's pocket okay ever and so um we have a saying that yield pays the bills and soil health just pure plain pays always um and so in so we've been transitioning right it was a transition period um and now um i feel like we're we've been transformed right when you're transformed into something there's no going back right right so think of think of the caterpillar turning into a butterfly that's a transformation there's no going back for that butterfly to that caterpillar. There's, there's no going back. And so I feel like that's where we're at um, as a family and as a farm is we've moved beyond that. And those, those things that we used to do are no longer an option. And so that mindset shift and the transition period is great, but for it to have a lasting impact, that the regeneration of our farm needs to spread out hmm. into the community and across the fence line to the other farms. And um, the best way we can do that is through food. Yeah. And, and like I said, um, that first customer we ever had changed me like at my core. Um, and we have, we've been stone milling our own flour since I met my customer, I've gotten a new mill since the very first one I tried, but um, we, we stone mill our own flour. I make our own bread um, and we flake our own barley for breakfast. Um, and those are things that we weren't incorporating before. Like if, if it had not been for that um, online ad, like, I don't know if we, I mean, I know we'd still be, you know, regenerating our farm but what would it have taken for us to actually put what we're growing on our plates um i credit him 
so much for changing that perspective of me. Um, and because it's changed the way our family eats, it changes the way his mom and dad don't buy bread at the store anymore. They're milling their own. They grow their, or, you know, they mill their own, they make their own bread. Um, and so it was, I, that first customer, it, it, it changed everything to me. I just felt like everyone deserved to have access to the grain we were growing that was not organic, not on the organic market, but that was something that where we could actually heal the soil system and create better food. Right. So yeah, it was, it was, it's a pretty awesome story about how it changed me as a person um, and my whole perspective, because I've, I've always been proud to be a farmer. Um, but when we start putting what we're growing on our own plates and then on the plates of others, like physically doing that, like I know that the pasta that my neighbor is eating is came from my farm. I mean, that means a lot to me. And so um, it was two years ago Octo- in October that um, I wanted to bring two pantry staples to my customers who I was selling whole grain to at this point, right? Um, selling whole grain by the bucket all over the U.S., right? Just me taking a bucket to UPS. Here you go, <laughs> um, right? It's like slow and steady, right? It wasn't like my husband's just like, your grain hauling is like 400 pounds at a time and mine's a thousand bushels at a time. I was like, okay, well, we'll just watch it add up, right? Like, yeah, it's going to take me a long time, but it doesn't take me as much grain to get to the same number, right? Like, um, so it's, it's, it's a different form of marketing for sure. Um, and um, it takes, it can be both. Um, and so two years ago, I wanted to offer two pantry staples with the grain. And so I asked Kelly, that's my husband. I asked him, I was like, what are two things are in everyone's pantry? And he was like, what? I was like, everyone has pasta? And everyone has flour. And he was like, okay. And I said, they can have guardian grains, flour, and pasta. And he was just like, mm, good luck with that. Right? Like, he was just like, no. <laughs> and um, so I was like, I really want to do this. So we grow a couple of ancient wheat varieties. One of them is a Rouge de Bordeaux. That is a red wheat that, um, a hard red wheat that got its name from the Bordeaux region of France. Um, in the 1800s, but it actually can be traced back to Roman times. So it's super old. And um, we also grow an Egyptian hullus barley that is, that dates back um, like 8,000 BC. So it's pretty old and ancient. And um, so when I wanted to do flour and pasta, there are four pasta companies in our state. And so I was like, Ooh, I can bring flour to one of these places and they will make pasta. Like I was so naive and I did not know like the rabbit hole of, of what volume meant. And, and so one of them was like, okay, we, you, we can do this for you. We'll need 20,000 pounds of flour. I was like, what? 
20,000 pounds of flour? Like, how am I going to sell 20,000 pounds of pasta at a time? Like, I'm just one person. I was like, I got a little online shop, right? Like, I'm not, and I have, and Alex, I have like zero interest in being in any big box store. Like, I, that's not a goal. And so, like, 20,000 pounds of pasta, I was like, I can't move that, like, door to door. Like, that's going to take me, like, too long. And, um, and, like, that's another thing that you need to know about me is, like, I have no interest in being in the big box store. Um, I like mom and pop shops a lot. And I like going direct to consumer. People are so used to buying their groceries online because of the pandemic they have no problem ordering flour and pasta and whole grain, right? So it just kind of worked to do it that way. But so that didn't work. And, and then um, one of the pasta companies is like, yeah, we can do it. So bring in 20,000 pounds of ultra refined wheat flour is like ultra refined. And they're like, well, yeah. And I was like, no, I want a whole wheat pasta. And they're like, well, yeah, but to be whole wheat pasta, it only has to be 51% whole wheat. I was like, what? Right. For real? Like, that's not whole wheat. That's partially wheat. Why does it, why do they say whole wheat if it's only 51%? That's not even a passing grade at school, in school. Like 51%, that's a fail, right? Like, I was like, what? So then I went down the rabbit hole of discovering pasta. And I was just like, and have you ever um had a bowl of pasta at like one of the pasta restaurants and been like left there being like oh feeling so sluggish and so full and like just wanting to take a nap oh yeah um well it turns out <laughs> that i call it blonde pasta so anything that looks yellow um is made with the semolina flour which is usually from durham um and semolina flour is just the inside of the kernel. So each grain kernel of wheat or durum has three layers. It has an outer layer, which is the bran. It has a little spot in the center. That's the germ. That's like the where it gets its vigor to grow the plant. And it has the center, which is endosperm, which is most of the kernel. Okay. So... Blonde pasta uses just the endosperm. Um, what's found in the endosperm is straight starch and sugar. Okay. Um, so when we make pasta from semolina flour or the endosperm of the wheat or the durum, we're just delivering straight starch and sugar. And our bodies without the bran don't know what to do with that so it's just like your body's like i have no idea what to do with this so i'll just keep this on your hip for 20 years and yeah. that's exactly what happens because it's completely undigestible because we've taken away the digestibility by taking away the brand and we've taken away the nutri nutrients so now and so i really felt like wow that's really bad yeah. like that there's no digestibility in it, right? Like that's really not great. And um, and so I started working with Northern Crop Institute in Fargo and doing a pasta pilot with them. And they had a stone mill called the New American Stone Mill. And it was it's made in Vermont and by a baker. He designed it himself. And um, 
and I got to Kelly and I went to Northern Crop Institute and watched them take our Rouge de Bordeaux, put it through the stone mill, and they were going to do a pasta pilot so we could see if whole true whole wheat pasta could be made from a red wheat, not Durham, but a red wheat and a heritage red wheat. And we get there and the guy running the pilot, he was like, okay, so we're going to have to sift it off. I was like, what? He was like, yeah, we're going to have to sift off the bran. I was like, I, I thought we were stone milling it. He's like, oh yeah, we're going to stone mill it. We'll stone mill it and we'll sift it. We'll take off the bran and then we're going to hammer mill the bran and then we're going to reintroduce it. I was like, what? No, I don't know. I said, I want just, I came here to for stone mill the flour, add water and put it to pasta. That's what we're here to do. Like I was really clear about the objectives, right? Like before we got to Fargo and I was not dragging my husband down this rabbit hole, like, to be suaded in any way right and he was like whoa um well we're gonna have to add egg egg powder i was like what the heck is egg powder i was like and eh, no because then it's not a vegan option right i came here for stone milled flour and water and turning it into rouge de bardot artisan pasta that's what i came to do and kelly just looks at this poor guy and was just like just tell her yes just just tell her yes and he's like and riley's like well it's not gonna work out and um and kelly said and when it doesn't she'll shut up you're gonna need to like show her that it's not gonna work like there's no out and and so he was kind of like he was grumbling a little bit and i was like um and kelly was just you know he's been down this too too many times right like he he's aware like I was I was on a mission like you just gotta follow it through and if it doesn't work I'll be okay with it but if it does I, I need to know and so guess what lo and behold you can stone mill rouge de bordeaux flour add water and press it through a pasta extruder in through a brass die and did you know oh wait till you hear this okay um do you know like do you have any teflon in your kitchen like your cooking pot yeah i think so okay okay well a few years ago i watched a movie on saying how bad teflon was right okay and some documentary and i was like mortified that i was cooking with teflon and plastic was in my food and it was a whole thing and so i removed all the teflon from my kitchen right i've been struggling with stainless steel pots since <laughs> um but um, anyway, so did you know that a smooth noodle is smooth because it's passed through Teflon? Oh. So the dye that you pat that they pass the dough through to make the shapes is coated in Teflon. That helps give it a smooth texture to the noodle, um, and it keeps the dust down in the factory for the workers. Okay. And I was just like, because he, the guy running the pasta pilot, he's like, do you want artisan pasta or you want this one? I was like, what the heck is the difference? He was like, well, this one's passed through a Teflon dye and this one's passed through a brass dye. And the brass dye gives it a rough texture, which helps it hold more sauce. I was like, so I can choose one that's going to be rough in texture and hold more sauce, or I can choose the one that's been passed through Teflon. It was like, is that even a choice? 
I was like, no, absolutely. I don't want the Teflon dye. Let's go artisan pasta, please. And right. So like, that's a little known fact, right? Like if it's a smooth noodle, it's been passed through Teflon. Like that's like, who knew? But anyway, so we produced pasta that day with stone milled flour and water through a brass dye with no Teflon. And it was awesome. And then I was um, left with like, now how do I re recreate it on my own, right? Like, because that was just a pasta pilot. That was just to find out what could work and what didn't. And so, um, and you remember that was two years ago in October that I, that I went down this, this rabbit hole. And so I was feeling kind of discouraged because I just really didn't know what to do. And Northern Crop Institute called me and said, um, there's a place in Tuttle looking for a pasta project. I was like, what? Where's Tuttle? Right? Like, where is this? I had to Google it. I found it. It's 110 miles to the south and east of me. And in this 100-year-old schoolhouse, they have a certified USDA-inspected kitchen. Right? I was like, great. That's awesome. How does that help me in my pasta project, right? Like, that's really cool. Um, turns out, in this kitchen, they have um, a $25,000 Italian pasta machine sitting there in the kitchen under a drape. And I call the Tuttle Rural Innovation Center and I get the gal on the phone who is the director, who is like a 20 something year old, fresh out of college, full of ideas and like zero resources, right? Because she's in the Total Rural Innovation Center. There's not a lot of opportunity in this town of 60, right? That's mostly retirement age. And I'm asking her all the questions like, how many days a week do you produce pasta? What kind of packaging do you like? Well, how many days a week are you shipping? And she was like, oh, wait, wait. We don't actually produce pasta here. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> She's like, no, no. Um, we want to rent out the kitchen space. And if you rent out the kitchen space, you can use the pasta machine. I was like, rent out the kitchen space? I don't know how to make pasta. Like, what? And she was like, oh, we can learn together. I was like, oh, you don't even know. You don't even know how to make pasta. That's excellent. Um. And she's like, right, so we can learn together. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really unbelievable. And I was like, oh my gosh, how can I make this work? And she's like, well, you should come try it. You should just bring some stone milled flour from your house, from your little countertop mill and bring it here. And we could try it to see if it'll work. Cause obviously they have less like, you know, less equipment than the Northern Crop Institute at NDSU does, right? This For is sure. this is a it's a pasta extruder, but it's not like the equipment they have. And so I took Kelly in the beginning of November, so it's just about two years ago, a little over two years ago, on a drive to Tuttle, 110 miles to the south and east of us, and we pull into Tuttle for the first time. I've never been there before. And at the end of Main Street is this two-story, 100-year-old school sitting there like a beacon of hope, right? And I'm like, sweet, that must be the place. Like, where else could it be? Um, 
And so we park and we get in and we notice right away when we're parking that there's a coal chute. There's still heating on coal um, in the hundred year old schoolhouse. And we're like, wow, they can't get a grant for something, for something like, like newer, like a newer technology than coal, right? Like that's, that's an opportunity, right? Um, but we get in there and we meet the director of the Tuttle World Innovation Center and she's awesome. And she, she, that she, she's no longer there, but at the time she was full of energy and optimism and just so great and we walked in and we get down into the basement where the USD inspected kitchen is and there's no heat no heat it's November it's starting to snow no heat in North Dakota um and so we walk in and I basically um Kelly basically checked out um he went out and got his coat first thing he did and then stood there with his arms crossed while this gal and I tried to use this pasta machine for the first time together like <laughs> so um turns out it worked great like it does work right you can use stone milk flour in this pasta machine from italy that was twenty five thousand dollars that ended up in the basement of this usda inspected kitchen waiting for somebody to utilize it and we left there and my husband puts his hand on my knee and he says i'm really sorry this isn't going to work out for you and I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? We are doing this. And he was like, wait, what? I was like, yeah. And he was like, no. He was like, Deanna, there's no heat. I was like, well, they're fixing it. And he was like, um, there's no people. I was like, I just need two. And I said, and I really can do anything for a year until you move, build me something on farm where I can move it home. And he was like, oh. It's not going to happen. I was like, and he's like, you were going to apply for a grant for the stone mill. The stone mill is $20,000, right? It's not, it's not, it's, it's not a cheap piece of equipment. Yeah. And, I, and he was like, you were going to apply for that grant for the stone mill. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, good luck with that. I was like, well, I already got an interview. Um, he was like, what? He was like, I'm like, yeah, we can present um, our proposal to him next week. He was like, next week i was like yeah and um so we so long story short we got the grant for the mill and now i had to find people to work and so the director of the total rural innovation center went to the town meeting and in the town meeting she announced that guardian grains is coming to tuttle and they're gonna need two employees and in the small group that was attending the town meeting was a gal and her fiance who had just moved up and bought a farmstead outside of Tuttle that came up from Louisiana and bought a farmstead outside of Tuttle um, to be closer to her dad who was sick and so and and living in steel and she was looking for work and she was um she came from hotel management okay. and her fiance came from the food service industry. Okay. So, um, and they both were looking for jobs and they both applied and literally the stars aligned and we found two teammates to work in Tuttle um, that have really 
gone above and beyond to, um, you know, take my vision and bring it into people's homes on a daily basis through stone milled flour and artisan pasta and flaked barley. They do everything there Monday through Friday, some Saturdays, and um, I deliver grain to them. And the goal is no longer to move um, the flour and pasta home. Uh, I love utilizing the existing space in Tuttle in the 100-year-old schoolhouse. I love that. Like, if I don't rent the kitchen, who's going to? Like, right. <laughs> right? Um, and I, I just, I'm so appreciative of, of the existing infrastructure and not having to put up something new to go back to the way things used to be, right? So we're stone milling, which is a method from the 1800s, low heat to preserve nutrition, right? And so I don't need a new building for that. I can use this 100-year-old schoolhouse for that. Um, so it's just really been awesome and challenging on so many levels. Um, it's grown much faster than Kelly had anticipated it would. And it's grown slower than I thought it would. So it's somewhere in the middle. And um, the really the most challenging part of it is our on-farm bottleneck that we're working through now. So um, as you can imagine, most grain farms are not set up to clean to food grade mm. um, and store all of the grains separately, right? Like, so we're in a growing pains stage on farm. Um, so, and investing in um, a cleaning facility, a building that we just put up this year uh, just is just getting finished. Um, so we can clean the grain inside, so we can clean during the winter months, when it's snowing, when it's cold, when it's windy. Um, and so we can do it when there's a little more free time rather than in the summer months when we already have so much going on. Um, and so really, it's just been an evolution of the, doing the next thing. And sometimes if if... Uh, it's a passion project, right, of mine. Um, and Kelly's really great to keep feeding the fire, right? So he knows that um, a flame was started and he just keeps feeding the fire. And it it, it came uh, two years ago when we got the grant for the stone mill. I, I had said, can we afford to invest in this? And um, he knew how much I wanted to make this happen, but he's very good financially with all the books. And he said, I don't know about investing in that, but I'll invest in you. Oh, so that if, is this is, if this is what you feel called to do, then let's, how, how can it not work? Right. And um, so and so, yeah, that's where we're at on two years. And so I said two years ago, we had the idea for flour and pasta. And that was in October. We saw the facility in November and we were in full production and flour and pasta in April. Okay. So because of um, being uh, majority self-funded, 
um, we've been able to move faster than if we had to wait for crowdfunding or investment or anything like that. So we've been able to put in produ into production much faster and not have to cut through a bunch of red tape and, and things like that being, um, being that we invested in this part of it. So, um, and I think that, and it's hard, it's hard um, to do what we're doing. And um, when my husband and I are out cleaning grain and it's 10 degrees and windy, he does not love my choice then, right? Like, and he will tell me that he, I need better working conditions for employees. And I've said, quit complaining. You work for free. Um, and, um, and I just tell him, you know what? You're right. It's a lot of work to bring better food to people. Yeah. But if we don't do it, who will? Yeah. And so there's so many barriers that we are trying to climb over and, um, um, eliminate, you know, between the farming practices and the heritage grain, the gluten sensitivity, right? They all tie together. And I had was under the impression that the gluten sensitivity, well, my customers were telling me was from modern wheat. And as I dug deeper into the, the history of it and what's happening is that it could be a number of things. It could be the farming practices, right? Um, fertilizer ends up in the food and not probably the way we need it to, right? Fertilizer is a huge problem that we're not being told about. Um, herb too much herbicide use is a problem as well, right? Um, but probably the biggest factor that I have found as being uh, a problem in the food system is the processing of the food itself. Okay. So the wheat that we grow and that the, my neighbors even grow, like even on a conventional level, that nutrition is not reflected in the loaf of bread at Walmart right. at all. So the between the ultra processed um, processing, the additives, the um, preservatives, um, they're they're causing digestive issues and we're calling it gluten intolerance. Right. right? Um, so yeah, it's kind of a rabbit hole of a lot of, a lot of history gone bad. And really um, when we started looking into stone milling versus other methods of milling flour to bring flour to our customers, I looked back and found into looked into the history of it and during the first world war the soldiers were sick and the medics couldn't explain it and they found that they were malnourished okay and this was 30 years after the um roller mill took full hold in the flour companies and so stone milling went away and they started using a roller mill which refined the flour and took away the bran and the germ, which is where the nutrition is, the digestibility is. And also um, those are the two things that can go rancid. Okay. Right? So they took those away for shelf stability so that the flour could make it from one end of the country to the other 
in the 1930s, um, in 1918 and 1920s. And um, before, you know, there was prime shipping, which is no longer prime shipping. It's just a bad joke. Um, but anyway, so um, they refined it for shelf stability. And those soldiers were getting refined flour made into bread. And because of that, um, the USDA demanded that they enrich the flour. So since then, the flour has all been enriched. So it's been a hundred year um, science experiment. Um, and they've known that the flour is bad for us for over a hundred years. And they're continuing to do the same thing that they've always done. And um, that's why we went to stone milling and trying to get, get to where before things started going south and delivering whole nutrition flour that our bodies can recognize as digestible became a mission and seemed like there was not much like seemed like number one on the list of importance for what it is we were trying to do and so yeah, so now I refer to all-purpose flour as Franken flour. It's <laughs> my bad science experiment. Um, yeah, so yeah, there. That, it's a lot, right? It's a lot. It is, and okay. When we first met at that farmers market, you told um, my wife and I a story about when you were trying to get your labels made for the first time, and so oh, I did. Part. I told you that. I don't tell a lot of people that story. If you feel comfortable. You're talking about the nutritional label? Yes. Would you break that down for us if you feel comfortable? Yeah, it's, again, there's another crime against humanity, right? Like, how do you, how do you know? So um, when it came to the nutritional label, um, for in order to be able to ship my product once it's been processed, the whole grain, I don't need a nutritional label for ever because I'm not processing it in any way. But for the flour and pasta, I need a nutritional label if it's going to ship anywhere. If it's delivered to you at a farmer's market, I don't need it, Got right? Because then it falls under cottage food law. Okay. But if I'm shipping it um, and I'm not hand delivering it, then it needs to have a nutritional label. Again, learning stuff I had no idea. Like, how do you know that, All right? And so um, I would. I was looking at a nutrition label and all I needed was um, the ingredients. And then you could go online and buy a nutritional label based on your ingredients. So I could say that I have whole flour and I could get a nutritional label for like 25 bucks. Well, it's like, that's not accurate. I'm trying to build a business based on transparency, right? So that people can know their farmer and know where their food's coming from and traceability so they can actually see the field where I grew this wheat. And now you're telling me I can get just some random nutrition label off of the internet for 25 bucks. I was like, that's not good. And there's no way that my flour is the same as the Franken flour on the shelf. Like there, like I can't go with that. Like, cause I'm, adamant that the way we're farming is growing more nutritious more nutritious food right so i have to prove that yeah so in order to do that 
I, I work with a medallion food lab in Minneapolis and I send them my flour and pasta and they, they do a whole workup on specifically on what it is I'm sending them. There is no algorithm, no, um, no prefab um, nutrition label. And yes, is it more expensive? Absolutely. So the nutrition label online is $25. Anybody can get it. Um, but to do it in this way through the food lab where they're actually testing exactly what I'm selling is about a $1,600 test. Yeah. So, but it, it matters. It matters to me. It matters to me, number one. And it, I need to be able to tell my customers what, what the difference is between my heritage artisan pasta and the blonde pasta that they're getting on the shelf or my whole true whole wheat pasta versus what they think is whole wheat pasta that turns into mush when you cook it. Right. Like there's that. So yeah, that (laughs) I didn't know. I I forgot. I had forgotten to say, I don't tell a lot of people that story because it doesn't like, yeah, but, but I know, right? But then you find lots of things when I, like I said, it's a, it's a literal rabbit hole. Like there was like I, everything I just started uh, more and more was exposed to me. And I was like, how is this even possible? Like, this is just not right. Like nobody knows this. And it just keeps going. Yeah. It just keeps going. And like, I feel like whenever in any field, right, whether it's this type of thing or anything, the more, que- like not a lot of people are willing to ask the question and go all the way for the truth. And so the things that you dig up when you're willing to just go all the way. Well, and here's the thing is we can ask the question, right? But when we get the truth, we need to be able to be like, am I okay with that truth? Or do I need to change the way the things are going? Yes. Right? Right. Like, that's the choice. And that's why people sometimes don't ask the question. Right, because they don't want to put the resources on the line too afraid to like not know and too afraid to unknow right and there's so many things like between um like what we've learned in our transition in in farming and and about soil biology and about uh, bioremediation with with the soil microorganisms and herbicide you like can't unknow these things right and when you do learn them, you want to tell everyone. Um, and because, and like the same thing happened with the pasta and with the flour. Um, I really feel like it's a crime against humanity. And so learning that, how could I just sit there and be like, yeah, I guess it's fine. No, it's not. And so, um, so yeah, that's that's the that's the challenge, right? Is to decide of whether we can just be okay with knowing how it's not okay or if we're going to actually do something to change it. And the thing is is like I'm not um we need a full systems change, right? In farming in general. Like I'm not but it's not just farming. Farmers are moving faster than the food processors are. Right. So there's it's a whole system change. And so since that seems too massive for me to tackle, yeah, we can do 
small batch pasta delivered to people's door and flour stone milled to order and work with local bakeries and that really want to try to put better food on the plates for the people they're serving. Um, you know, those kinds of partnerships um, are not as um, daunting of a task of changing the whole food system. Right. What if we can just reach some? And so, yeah, that's really what, what it's about is really about um, helping people find that there's other options and just because it's available on the shelf doesn't mean it's food. Right. Um, right. Like there, so it's supposed to be food. <laughs> right? Like that's what like you're talking about, like growing your own food. Everyone needs to grow their own food. Um, at least on some level, yeah. whether it's a patio tomato or a, a cucumber plant, right? Like, everyone should be growing something um and it just connects us in a way that we've probably been missing for a really long time uh, you're you're spot on and we <laughs> did our first like big garden this year with hopes and dreams of having so much of our own produce and stuff and it was it was an <laughs> utter failure but we got a few tomatoes and we had a good time so <laughs> well you're not the only one that struggles um because uh, I do a really, really solid job of like getting it planted, and then it's kind of survival of the fittest. So, like, um, because we're in a no-till garden system, uh, that means it requires a lot of mulching and, um, and and things like that. So, if I'm behind on it, which I am, like, hello weeds, like you have to like forage through the weeds to get to the onions it wasn't awesome right so you're not the only one um but i next year like my husband and i were just talking about that it's like how how did i get so busy that i didn't have time to grow my own food hmm. so next year it will be a full-on focus rather than just in the beginning and it'll be um more of a family effort um next year i just you know one of those things it was just like wait i did we i went to the trouble of planting it and then you know instead of putting mulch out a few times in the season the weeds took over and i couldn't find the food like that's ridiculous but it happens and um reprioritizing and and part of that is is how busy we are with guardian grains yeah right um it's it's a lot it's a lot and um but I'm reminded about how important it is when I get emails from my customers or reviews from my customers online, or I run into somebody from a farmer's market that remembers me from 18 months ago. You <laughs> just never know who you're going to connect with. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so that's when it matters is, um, you know, how, how, it, how we can impact um, the people around us. And so, yeah. So can I do better? Absolutely. <laughs> like, <Can't> we all? <laughs> yeah. So it's the learning process, right? And next year we get another chance That's to right. do it better. Right? That's right. Yeah. We don't have a lot of, a lot of growing frost free days. I, I always tell like 
I get interviewed once in a while. And so they're like, tell me about your growing conditions. I was like, well, we get 134 frost-free days. So 230 are solid ice, but you know. What is the, like, what is the cycle for, for wheat? Like, cause I mean, obviously it, it fits within that range, right? Otherwise you would be able to, yes. to do it, but what, what is the actual growing cycle? So typically on a modern wheat, you're looking at my, fewer days. So okay. under 90, okay, under 90 days. Um, but with my heritage wheat varieties or with spelt, um, they're a much longer season. So, um, like, for instance, my spelt, which is one of the three original ancient wheats. Uh, so there was einkorn, emmer, and spelt. Spelt is 120 days. Okay. From the time I plant it to the time I combine it. And so that only leaves um, 14 days on either side um, that are frost-free like that's or 20 days right so no 14 days on either side that are frost free so i don't have a lot of time to like hmm, should i plant it what, what should i go i can go tomorrow no there is not like you're either planting it or you're not um and this year we ran it really close because of the delayed growing season normally when we're in in mid-may now we were pushing the beginning of june that pushes it very far and we barely got it off before the barely got it off in time um and that one takes a little more um effort in the processing it's our most labor intensive grain to process because it has to be de-hulled which means it has a tough seed coat that we have to run through a machine to take that seed coat off and then we take the kernel from there and clean it from there so it's a separate two-stage processing for cleaning it's a little more in depth and a little more involved um but it has great flavor yeah. and my, and the bakers that love it, love it for lots of reasons. And it does awesome things in my soil structure. It's got a massive root system. The stuff gets like four and a half feet tall with one inch of rain. Like it's awesome. So like, there's lots of benefits. It's just uh, like, there's a reason like nobody grows it. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's also the only market I have for that is whatever I build. Right. So with that one in the Egyptian Hullis barley, which is why we offer flaked barley as a breakfast option. Those are my only markets or whatever I build. The French wheat that we grow, I can go to the elevator with that to my commodity market. Uh, and it will meet all the specs of a modern wheat. They don't ask you, well, what's your wheat yet? They don't ask you yet, what wheat variety is this? It has to be X, Y, or Z. They don't ask that yet. I know they do in some countries. They do not hear yet. And so they don't care if I'm growing a wheat from the 1800s. Right. As long as it meets their spec. Um, but so that one's a little more flexible. And I didn't mention, so 10 years ago, um, when we started transitioning, I, yeah, I did mention that we were at 7,500 acres, right? under full agronomy and we were 100% um 100% rented ground so everything we farmed we had on a lease with a landlord right okay. like we didn't own any farmland at that time and so 
now fast forward 10 years later, um, we have cut down our farm size to 2,800 acres. Okay. Um, 2,200 of those are cropland acres. 600 acres of that is native wildlife habitat um, for all of our pollinators and our, and our um, native wildlife, um, native livestock that are around. Um, and so we've been able to downsize the farm. And now instead of over 50 miles, we farm two mile radius. So everything's very close. Okay. And instead of being um, 100% rented, we are 80% owned. Cool. And so when I say that soil health pays. Yes. That it shows, I we don't, like farmers don't like to talk about acres, right? That's been a huge adjustment when I've, when I've been starting to talk about um, what we do on our farm. Yeah. Um, but I, from other farmers, when we're trying to help spread the word of soil health, they will say it's not profitable. Yeah. But that, that, that showing them that we were a hundred percent rented on 7,500 acres 10 years ago, and now we're on 2,800 acres, 80% owned proves that it pays. Right. 100%. Yeah, we're growing less crop. Right. Right. There is. But I'm not spending the, what we were spending on it before. Yeah. So there's more money that stays and then I can invest. We can invest in guardian grains or as my husband say, he'll invest in me then. Um, so, I mean, it's a different it's a different way of farming, but it has been we are more economically viable than we were. Yeah. So, and I think people need to know that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Cause I would imagine that's probably just knowing how we all are, like we got to make a living and all that stuff. I would imagine that's people's main obstacle to doing those things as you start learning. Right. Cause like once you, like what you said, once you fully embrace it, there's no turning back. But I think people who are just starting to see things, it's easy to sort of psych yourself out. And right. I would imagine yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. when you're, but the when way you're it's just like it. Yeah, that it absolutely is that until you change your perspective and you look at all of the bushels, instead of being profitable, they cause wear and tear on equipment. The bushels cause more fuel being used to haul it more more infrastructure to store it right? right like all of that so once you start changing your perspective then it's easy to be like oh maybe that's not as profitable as i thought it was right yeah that's so yeah. good i have like a handful uh, more questions um what <laughs> <laughs> I, I could go forever but um we'll, we'll keep it to a handful um one of the other questions i have is um, so you did the nutritional testing and figured out, um, you know, what like your pasta has and the flour and all that stuff, what kind of differences. So you mentioned some of the stuff with the digestion, right? So like what nutritional differences are there from the, the flanken Franken flour and, you know, your flour and other people who would process it the same way as, as you guys do. Um, yeah. What type of stuff is this like protein or fiber or what kind mm -hmm. of stuff showing up? Yep. Those are the differences, right? So always the calories on ours are a little bit higher. Um, and uh, the fiber is higher. Like you said, the protein is higher. So like, for instance, um, 
we grow, um, we grew a milling oat um, for, because I wanted to offer oatmeal for my customers. Oh, cool. And yeah. And so we grow milling oats. And then um, in the meantime, uh, my husband's making me oatmeal all the time, every day. And um, in the meantime, I run out of, I ran out of my Bob's red mill steel cut oats. Yeah. And I said, can you just make me barley? And he was like, what? I was like, can you just um, put barley in the, um, in, in the flour mill on the coarse setting? And just like, so it just like cracks it a little bit and then just cook that instead. And he was like, sure, whatever. And so he, he cooked it for me. And in the, you know, he's making the oatmeal all these years, all this time. And he's still eating eggs and bacon from, from, that's what he's having, right? Eggs, bacon, toast, eggs, bacon, toast. That's what he's having for 15 years. That's 17 years. That's what he's been eating. And, um, and he, he makes it a second day. And the third day he was like, you were at the store today. Didn't you get your oats? I was like, I don't want those oats anymore. He's like, what? I was like, no, I like this barley, like for breakfast. I like this Egyptian hollis barley for breakfast. And he was like, fine, I don't care. You're great. I'm glad you're eating it. And finally, like after like seven days of him making me barley and he's still eating his eggs, bacon and toast. I said, you should really try this. It's so good. And he was like, what? I'm like, I'm not kidding. It's so good. You should just really try it. And he was like, oh, fine, I'll make. And I said, plus, you only have to wait one breakfast. You won't have to, like, make two separate breakfasts, like a short order cook, right? Like, it's one thing. You just be easier. Streamline your, it'll be efficient, right? It's an nice. efficient use of your kitchen time, right? Like, and he's all about efficiency. So, um, so he eats um, barley and he likes it. And for 17 years, I've been packing a 10 o'clock snack for him. So he has a very high metabolism and he, uh, his blood sugar levels crash at about 10 AM. And so for 17 years, I've been making granola bars or whatever for him to take, um, for his 10 o'clock snack. And when he came in for lunch that day, he came in with a 10 o'clock snack and I was like, did you die? Like, he was like, I didn't get shaky today. Wow. And I was like, what? He was like, no. So he tried it again because maybe it was a fluke, right? Maybe he just didn't get the one time in 17 years. Like maybe it was just habit. Like maybe it's just habit. Maybe he actually didn't need to be snacking, right? And this day two, there was no shakiness. His blood sugar levels didn't drop. He's not diabetic. It's just really high, high metabolism. And so... We noticed that in him is that his blood sugar levels were um, normalized. They weren't so erratic. Um, and so since then, so, and so since he's been a barley man ever since he no more eggs and bacon, like that's a breakfast for supper kind of thing. He's a barley man now. That's all he has. And he no longer, I no longer make him a 10 o'clock snack. Like if I would have known that we would have been eating barley years ago. Like that could have saved me a ton of time, right? Like no more 10 o'clock snack. Well, that's gone. So, um, and what we're finding too is our customers who have type two and type one diabetes, they have been my like personal, they're like, they test their blood sugars and then they send them to me and be like, look, no blood sugar spike. Look, I'm maintaining blood sugar levels after I've had barley or after I've had flake barley. 
and um, I have diabetic cu um, customers that are told not to eat pasta. And so they're, you know, they, well, I want to try your pasta. And they check their blood sugar levels before and after, like as a test for me. And then they're like, look, no blood sugar spike. So because the pasta is not just straight starch and sugar causing the blood sugar spike and crash, um, there's actually nutrients and digestibility with it. So it's leveling it out. So they're not experiencing the highs and lows, which is great. And then they're like, so those, those things uh, we're learning from our customers, right? But I learned it from my husband watching him eat barley. Um, so those kinds of benefits of the whole grain, whole nutrition and how it can impact our metabolisms and our blood sugar levels uh, and our digestion. That's all about fiber and protein and all of the micronutrients, right? And so, um, like I said, it's a little higher in calories, which we are so conditioned to hear calories is bad, right? right? But really, calorie is a measure of energy. Right. Like, really? It's like, what kind of energy are you getting rather than the stuff that's going to... Yes. We want yes. energy. Like, we got to... That's why we're eating food. Yes. Right. But people hear calories, they're like, oh, no. I'll take the 80-calorie um, light bread. No, you won't. <laughs> like you aren't doing yourself any favors, I promise. But you know, so there's there are those things. So those are the types of differences that we're noticing um, between ours and what's available um, to the masses. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, for you know, for people who listen and want to try try things out, what um, what simple meals would you recommend using you know whether it's the barley like you were saying or like that like um and again I know everybody has different tastes and all that stuff but if it was up to you of like hey these are some simple ways that you can utilize you know our our products and our food um for you know simple meals that that feel good I'm sure you probably hear from people all the time of the different stuff they're cooking and all that stuff and obviously you've tried a ton but yeah just I'm, I'm curious about that like for kind sure. of lunch dinner yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I, I, I've been saying that we have flake barley for breakfast. Typically, my husband makes it cold. The best way, and actually the first way you should have it, is cold. Like overnight oats. You've okay. heard of like all the overnight oat recipes. Yeah. I have some on the website. But really, any overnight oat recipe you can use with flaked barley. So, um and the flaked barley, and the, here's the here's why it's important to have it cold. Okay, so all of the nutrients that are in the grain are um, there because I don't sterilize it. Okay, so that's the other the difference between oatmeal versus my flaked barley. So my flaked barley is flaked to order, and it needs to be refrigerated or kept in the freezer okay. um, for longevity, right? because it's exposing all the oils and the nutrients and to air. And so um, everything starts oxidizing and it could go rancid faster. I have had flaked barley on my counter in, in my pantry for six months. It's still not rancid, but I do put on there like for, you know, longest shelf life, put it in the fridge or freezer. So ours goes bad, which is a good thing. 
Yes. So all the other oats on the market have been sterilized and heat treated. Mm. So when they do that, it also sterilizes the all of the good bacteria and the endophytes that are in the kernel. Okay. So the barley has um, water-soluble beta-glucans, which oats also has. Okay. okay. They both have that, right? But the water-soluble beta-glucan is your – it triggers your immune system response. Mm. Like it switches it on. So you need beta-glucan – to for immune system function and so the best way to get that in flaked barley is to have it cold so you don't heat it up and kill some of it so and so it's a great way to re-inoculate your gut microbiome especially after you've been sick or on an antibiotic or um, i'm not a doctor yeah yeah right okay like but that's like what it's the best right yeah okay so Hot or cold, it's great. Um, um, we like barley as a rice instead of rice. In the Instapot, on the rice setting, cook it fast, and then you can season it any way you would season rice, except now instead of the emptiness of uh, rice, you're getting all of the protein and fiber of the barley. And it has like 18% protein. Yeah. versus like and and i meant to mention that earlier too oats only have like 11 and a half so that's the difference in protein between the two um and then um so barley is very versatile versatile people don't think of it as being very versatile but as even as a flour it's it's great for anything you don't need a lot of rise out of so it's not awesome as a bread because it doesn't even though it has gluten it doesn't form structure gluten structure very good so it's better in quick breads and waffles and pancakes and crepes and um, cookies, right? And um, pasta, our pasta is awesome. All I tell people is don't skimp on the sauce because the brass dye that it gets pressed through gives it a little bit of a texture. It just helps it hold more sauce without getting mushy. So whatever your favorite sauce is, whether it's butter or actual sauce, don't skimp on it because it'll soak it up and you'll wish you added more. So um, those are very easy ways. And then on, on the website too, I have um, recipes that are tried and true with stone milled flour and um, pretty, I've made a lot of mistakes over the last couple of years baking with them. And so um, just to make it easier, I have some recipes on the website and our newest addition for flour is for not just my sourdough bakers, but it was kind of an answer for my sourdough bakers who had the question of how can I use better flour, but not have my sourdough bread end up like a brick. Yeah. And so we started offering what we call bread flour. It's not actual bread flour because bread flour in order to be bread flour has to be sifted to double zero, which means it's, there's nothing left. Just, just white um so we sift um use our sifter uh on the on the stone mill and it sifts off 30 percent of the bran leaving the flour lighter and only the smaller pieces of bran are there so the sourdough bakers who are not using added yeast can still get a good rise and lots of air pockets like they're used to and they get to use a fresh flour 
Um, that can be really used in any baking. It's not just for breads. It can be used for anything. Um, and so, yeah, those are, they're, it's super versatile and it's not as scary to use fresh stone milled flour as you might think. Um, and like I said, my recipes online are tried and true and there's some really easy ways to incorporate true whole grains into your daily routine without taking up a bunch of time and um, your digestion will thank you for it. Um, one of the reasons we started growing heritage wheat was for my customers that were like, that were buying wheat by the bucket. They were like, um, I only buy heritage wheat. I was like, what's that? <laughs> I was like, I don't know what that is. And so, um, I, again, and there was another rabbit hole, but, um, so glad we went down that road because there are so many soil health benefits to growing these ancient wheats. Um, it's, and they're, they're adapted to a system like ours because they have, they're non-hybridized. And so they were not, um, hybridized using like fertilizer amendments or anything like that. So they do awesome in my native like survival of the fittest um, system uh, because I'm not having anything. So like it's literally earth, air and water and some sunshine, like that's it um, as far as whatever crops we're growing. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. I love that. Um, one of the other questions I had kind of based on you talking about your background at the beginning too, like coming from you said the Twin Cities, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So coming from like an urban background, I feel like you'll appreciate this. Too. I'm originally from um, the West Coast, like north of Seattle. And so, you know, out there we weren't exposed. There's a lot of farming in Washington, but not on that part of the state, at least where I was at. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to have a misconception, a lot of misconceptions about yeah. what farming is and what type of people farm and how they do it and all these things, right? What do you think some of, the biggest misconceptions that people have about farming just people you know whatever it is right it's probably not generally a malicious thing but people just don't know and uh but yeah i'm assuming you've probably heard <laughs> all sorts of things and... right so i think the biggest mi misconception and is what we're being taught through fear right is that um Farmers are out here spraying all kinds of things um, on their crops, no matter what. Um, that's usually not the case. And not one of us, not one of us wants to poison the food system. None of us. Um, we can all do a better job. Every one of us. Um, so whether that is on a broad scale acre like how we farm or bigger, um, those are, there are ways to minima, minimize the chemical disturbance to get it to do a better job and keep it out of the food, out of the air and out of the water, right? It's used too much. Farmers don't know that um, you need soil biology to break down the chemical. Um, and I, the other thing is, so yes, um, our farming practices need to improve across the board, right? But on the flip side of that, so taking a no-till conventional farm, forget the regenerative part, forget the transition to soil health. 
let's just go conventional no-till. So not tilling the soil, but they're using herbicide and, um, and fertilizer. Changing that into saying no herbicide can be used means that we will have to switch to tillage. Mm. And if the conventional farmers that are practicing, practicing convention or conservation agriculture switch from a no-till system to a tillage system, it will be the d dirty 30s all over again. Okay. Nobody wants another black Sunday ever. Nope. Right? And before conservation ag, when the dirty 30s were here, all there was was organic. Mm. Everyone, the only way to rid our, rid, our, rid our fields of weeds was tillage. Like that doesn't work. We've, it's proven almost 100 years ago that tilling all the acres to rid ourselves of weeds doesn't work. So um, that's not a solution taking the herbicide away and replacing it with a tillage option in farming is not a solution. We want to talk about full systems collapse and um, food scarcity. That'll be the fastest way. Okay. So those are the two things. A, farmers aren't trying to kill you with the chemicals they're using, yeah. right? Nobody's trying to poison the food system. B, we all need to do a better job, right? Yeah. Less is more. Yep. Less is more. Um, and see, tillage cannot be the option to re remove or reduce the herbicide. Because the truth of the matter is, is, like I said, in a biologically active soil system, if we can all get our soils biologically active again, which it, we can, we just need to know how, um, then our soils can handle a herbicide disturbance, metabolize it and keep it out of the food, keep it out of the air, keep it out of the water. Like it works. Like it does that. Like that's what they use microorganisms for is bioremediation. Like that's what it does. So we need to be in the position though, to do that. We can't, we can't be spraying herbicide after herbicide or insecticide upon insecticide on dead soil. It doesn't work. Right. So there are opportunities, no doubt, to improve on all levels. Um, but I, I, I just like organic can't be the answer because the, the amount of tillage it takes in the system. Mm. So if 1%, 1% of the farms in the U.S. are organic, so now if we transition those other 99% and said, okay, but now you have to till, we'd be in, we'd be in the dirty thirties all over again. And nobody wants that, right? That's the whole reason that the, the um, soil conservation districts were formed was because of that. Okay. And so we all need to have soil health in mind and the best way we can protect it is to keep it covered. And to keep it covered means that we can't be tilling it all the time, right? So minimizing disturbance, that's the goal. Okay. So there, that's my, the miss. There's a couple of things, obviously, that I have 
I have some thoughts on, right? But yeah, yeah. those are that. That's great. Okay. That's why we're okay. here. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're here for the real thoughts. Um, <laughs> what is, okay. So like you've covered a lot of, like you guys have done so much in such a, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a ton of time, right? Like the 10 years and the the two couple years of, you know, guardian grains and all that stuff. What, like, obviously it's going to go how it's going to go. And like, it has the whole time and all these things have unfolded way crazier than you could ever imagine. But what are the things on your horizon that you're looking at right now saying, this is where I'm excited to go, um, you know, on a personal level, like for you and your husband, but also, you know, for the company and then just kind of what you hope for the region, I guess, like what is your sort of couple year ahead vision for, mm-hmm. for it all? So um, I think as far as guardian grains goes, um, we'll continue to improve our efficiency on farm, right? That's like I said, that's where we're at in the growing pain stage of it is really an on farm, an on farm um, uh, infrastructure issue. So we'll continue to improve in those areas and work on larger markets where um, we are currently working with smaller food companies who are looking for traceability and transparency in a non-organic system, but they want to know that the food is clean and the grains are clean. and There's no herbicide residual, right? That's the concern, really. They want to know there's no glyphosate in it. Right. That's what they care about, right? They want to they want to be able to say it's test chemical free, and they can say where it came comes from. So we're in in bigger working with bigger um, partners to do that to impact to get more of our bushels um, out of the commodity market and into the direct market. Um, so those are. Um, areas where there is going to be big shifts and big improvement for us going forward. Um, and that's on the guardian grain side on the, on the farming side, it's all about evolution. Right. Um, and so, so we didn't touch on this much. I, I, we talked about how we, we farm in a biological system, right. And so soil biology is the key to the functioning system, right? 100%. And when we came off of fertilizers in 2019 and came across the rhizophagy cycle and found like biology is the key to making this work for the plants to be able to feed themselves and create nutrients, right? That the, the biology was the key for that. So Kelly was trying to figure out how he could ramp up the biology. Okay. in the fields. And so we, he started researching compost, um, bio, biocomplete compost with Dr. Elaine Ingham and the soil food web. And he started looking at Johnson Sioux bioreactors where you can build your own composter. And in 365 days, you can have um, usable compost. Wow. Okay. Um, and so in 2019, when he was so giving me these ideas um, of what he was going to, this is the way we need to ramp up biology. I was like, A, number one, to really manage a compost pile, I need like a, a PhD yeah. of, of sorts. And B, we are short on workers, 
right? Like there is a whole lot of labor involved when you're talking about biocomplete compost for 2,200 acres, right? It's a lot. And we needed all of the things to make it manure, um, all of the residue, um, all, there was just so much um, that, that I said, no, 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 we're not doing that next. <laughs> and then he's like, well, we can do Milton's bioreactor. And in 30, 365 days, we can have viable compost. I was like, and what do I have to do in those 365 days while it's making compost? He was like, you just have to keep it warm and watered. I was like, warm? I was like, I'm feeding two small kids, right? Like, I'm already struggling to keep two tiny humans alive. Now you want me to keep a composting reactor alive for three warm in North Dakota? <laughs> and watered? Like, no, I can't commit. It's not working. Sounds great. I love it. I can see that people are having, it's working for them. Not for me. And I said, you're going to have to think of something else. And he back to the drawing board. And uh, he was quiet for a couple of days. And um, in that, I mean, he was just in his office researching, researching. And um, he came to me and he said, I think I have it figured out. I was like, sweet. Is it something that's going to cost me $20 an acre? Because available to farmers at a broad scale right now what farmers are referring to as biologicals they come in a jug a little jug <laughs> and we all all of us refer to them as bugs in a jug okay um i said and then they're 10 to 20 dollars an acre to use them okay and he said no it's not going to be that expensive i was like Okay. Well, what then? He's like, I think we can borrow microorganisms from our native areas, feed them, repopulate them in a brewer, like in a concoction, in a liquid concoction, and apply it to seed. <laughs> I was like, really? He was like, really? I was like, that's what you've been working on for a couple of days? He's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, show me where you learned this. And he's like, well, I, I can't show you one place. And I was like, well, show me what you read. He was like, well, I didn't read it. And I was like, oh, gosh. I was like, now, after all of this leap of faith, reducing fertilizer, now you're going to tell me that this is going to work and you haven't actually seen it work anymore. And he was like, yeah, I have. I've seen it work. I was like, great. Where? He was like, in nature. It works. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. So long story short, um, we borrowed indigenous microorganisms, which in um, gardening and farming is called IMO, okay. indigenous microorganism, um, which really just means soil. Okay. If your soil is alive, it's an indigenous microorganism. Okay. <laughs> like the biology that lives there is the IMO. Okay. Um, so we were going to borrow those from thriving systems on our, in our native areas. So remember I said we farm, we have 20, 2,800 acres and 600 of those acres are just habitat. Okay. 
right? So we were going to go around to select areas on, on the farm and borrow soil. And so we did that. And it, it fit in two five-gallon buckets, right? And we could walk and carry them. Like the whole fertility on the farm could fit in two five-gallon buckets. Okay. And I was like, that doesn't seem right to me. I was like, I've been looking at tons and tons and tons of applied compost. And you're telling me that we can apply fertilizer, like we can apply all the biology we need in these two buckets. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, how come nobody else is doing it? If it's such a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I don't think they're connecting the dots. And I was like, okay. So in 2019, we discovered the rhizophagy cycle. We decided, Kelly decided biology was the answer. He decided indigenous microorganisms were the answer. And he de developed a way to borrow them, feed them, repopulate them, and apply them to seed and use the seed as the carrier. Wow. So the idea is that every one of us is putting seed in the ground. Every yeah. one of us. And so what if we could have a quorum, a group, a party of biology all at the seed surface so that way when the plant germinates it has all of the essential workers right at the root zone and ready to engage in the rhizophagy cycle to feed the plant okay um so we we did that uh for four years and a and we've been we've we continued to do it and and it's easy um, and it's um, something I can handle on my own because remember um, uh, five years ago, my kids were five and four or five and three and I wasn't willing to add a whole lot more to my plate. And so it had to be simple enough that I could do it by myself while Kelly was in the air seeder that I could bio prime seed uh, on my own. And so um, it's a simple enough system that I can do it by myself and it costs pennies to the acre. Wow. So um, once, once we were all set up and built our little brewer, like we built a brewer to brew these biology to like multiply them for 24 hours. Um, the brewer costs us like $200 in hardware store supplies. It's super rudimentary and super basic and anyone can build it. Um. After we got all that set up, it cost us 33 cents an acre to apply biology to our seed, right? And we're putting the seed in the ground anyway. Um, might as well coat it with life, right? And so I, that's our backstory on, uh, on biology. Two years ago, we introduced it to a farmer in South Dakota. He's a mentor of ours. And he asked if, if he could use the system on his farm, which meant that he would borrow his own biology and he would brew it on his own farm. And so we walked him through how to do it step by step. This year, um, we made the whole system, the education of the whole system available to farmers everywhere. Ooh. So um, the system is called IMOS. Indigenous Microorganisms Solution. So everything's got an acronym, right? Everything is. Um, but so that you asked me on a personal level, what's really important. And working with other farmers 
to help them experience some of the freedoms that we've been experiencing and to help them help conventional growers, right? This is to help conventional growers moving into regenerative practices, moving into soil health practices, moving into eco-agriculture, whatever you want to call it, is to help helping them get off the hamster wheel of some of the inputs and focus on soil life. And they can source it all from the, the indigenous microorganisms on their farm. Um, that's been awesome. So that was, this was year one for that, um, to spread, like, I almost literally left our basement and went out onto other farms. What, and, and by that, it's just the education, right? Just, um, the education of showing other farmers how to do it. And, and so Kelly developed a bit, uh, video series. I was really pushy. Like, I'm like, it has to be easy. Like people can like log on and watch this thing. And it has to be so broke down that anyone can do it, including me. So like if I am a wife or an independent woman farmer and I want to build this brewer, I need a step-by-step video that will show me exactly how to do it myself, right? I am not very mechanical and not very technical and not very um, particular about certain like not that way and Kelly is so I needed a whole breakdown um so he he developed the video series and it's been available for to the other farmers for six months and um we've been watching and learning from other farmers and how they're applying IMOS in their systems and it's been awesome to find like help them discover observation on their farm. Yeah. Like just to pay attention of what's really working and what's not working and um and how we can play a role in that just by doing less. Yeah. So that that to me is probably the most exciting because we can move the farming efforts forward faster just by helping other farmers and um it's been pretty awesome that's cool i love that that's great yeah and like i told you as if the regeneration of our farm is going to have a lasting impact yeah it has to spread beyond our field borders and into the neighbors 100 and if it doesn't what are we doing this for if we're not doing it to cause a whole systems change then if we're just doing it to benefit ourselves, right. Then really what's the point? Yeah. I love that because there's always the question of like change the individual and work your way up or change the system Mm -hmm. and work your way down. And obviously both those things are crucially important and we need people jumping in at both sides. But I love that what you're saying is like, you start here. Okay. We changed our thing. Now it's going to just ripple up and hopefully go get traction. Well, and, and here's the thing is like, so the video series and the education, it's not free to the farmer, right? Like you, they pay for that. Um, they pay for the education. And then they can choose whether or not they want to make it work on their farm and in their system. They have the choice. Yeah. I just want all the, fa- all the farmers to know they have a choice because we're not given all the information. And 
by selling us a biological bug in a jug, that isn't giving us all the information either. They're not telling you, hey, guess what? You can make your own. Nobody's saying that. Right? Right. So, and we've always kind of been a little bit of of the outlier, right? Like on just a little bit on the outskirts, right? And really against the grain. Yeah. Um, and so this is no, this is no different. Yeah. We're just saying, Hey, guess what? Maybe you don't have to spend $20 an acre. You can probably do it for 33 cents. Like what? And then guess what? And you're going to have farmers be like, that'll never work, but I'll try it just to show you. Yeah. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we just, and I think it took me years to convince Kelly <laughs> to to show other farmers what we were doing. I think because his biggest um, hurdle was he did not want to farm the farmer. He did not want to be one more salesman yeah. to the farmer. Um, and so I really had to push. And it took, it took years to convince him that... Um, by keeping the information to ourselves was really a disservice to the whole regenerative movement. And that, um, how can the, how can other farmers make a educated decision if we're not giving all, given all the information. So make it available and let them decide for themselves. Yeah. So that's where we're at. But there, that's, that's probably the most exciting part. Yeah. is seeing seeing the impact that that could have not just not just here but everywhere um so it's it's kind of it's pretty awesome it's pretty awesome that's a beautiful thing i love that well yeah. so yeah there's one unex- another unexpected topic you didn't know we were going to get into like right like it's kind of late for soil biology Alex. i know right yes <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. It's never too late for soil biology. That's um, right. That's right. Um, well, to wrap up, I guess um, a good, yeah, we'll just leave space for you to sort of plug um, the best place for, you know, people across the country, world, wherever anybody's listening from to find, um, to find you guys. And also, um, or in, you know, and for local folks as well. And then just, you know, social media website whatever whatever you want to plug sure. here's the space yeah thanks um so we're online at um www.guardiangrains.com and um, we do most of all of our sales whether it's wholesale or retail or direct consumer through the website and um locally i would do a farmer's market in season which is past and um, I do a lot of in-person delivery still, um, which is great. And you can find us on social media and Facebook. We're Guardian Grains. And then we have a Facebook group. Um, and that's Guardian Grains Community. And on Instagram, Guardian underscore Grains. And um, so, yeah, and you can find us anywhere. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's, you know, it's a little bit late in the evening and all that stuff, but I appreciate it. And thank you for like all the 
all the work you guys are doing and and the education that you provided i, I just think it's really important important stuff that it means a lot to to me personally like you know all the food and nutrition stuff right like seeing all the stuff that goes on in the world mm-hmm. and anybody who's speaking about that stuff it's it's a powerful thing so thank you well it's just one of those things that you can't unknow it right and so we're learning all the time and i'm learning all the time and um i just want others to be able to have the information to without seeming like a flower snob because I can I can put on that hat very easily um, that might be because I call it Frankenflower but <laughs> um so yeah but thank you I'm so glad that you thought of me and um, that we got to reconnect yeah that's that's why I do the farmer's market right so yeah that's totally why is that I wanted to connect with our local community. So thank you for that. That's awesome. 